This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. This week, we're offering four conversations around the general topic of COVID-19 and fatty liver disease. Most of this conversation addresses issues of vaccine confusion, from confusion about the importance of taking a flu vaccine this year to confusion about the impact of Pfizer's full FDA approval. Stephen Harrison tells a story about a post-approval conversation with his son, while Roger Green cites public polling data to suggest that the benefit of the full approval is that it will drive more organizations to mandate the vaccine, and that is what will primarily increase its uptake. Finally, Donna Cryer talks about the importance of vaccine equity and simplified, more efficient global distribution as being necessary if we're going to realistically control the global nature of the COVID infection over time. This episode covered 10 separate topics in 50 minutes, so the conversation moves quickly and energetically. Don't miss a word, but just sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. Donna Cryer. We need to talk about the flu shot and we need to put that in messaging and bundle it. I have to admit, I sort of forgot about it. And, and it wasn't until I was in CVS, as I always am, every every third day at least, and saw the flu shot line. I was like, flu? Never had thought about the flu. Okay. and But I have some questions about timing the flu shot with COVID shot, and I'm sure other people do. So I'd like to you know explore that and have people talk about that and give people some clear information about how that works. Stephen Harrison. Okay, well, I'm going to be controversial. Louise Campbell. He's the priest. Roger Green. You, you do that, and then I'll do that, too. Go ahead. I'm going to be controversial. So, again, I know we're science-driven. We're data-driven. I don't have that caveat right up front, but I have anecdote. And for doctors, we may not change our practice based on one double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trial in the NEJM, but we will based on one anecdotal experience. So, here's my anecdote. How many people actually knew a person that had flu last year? I don't know if that's right. And, and let's take it one further step. My brother is an ER physician in Jackson, Mississippi. I mentioned that on this podcast several times. He hasn't seen a single case of the flu in 18 months. Uh-huh. It's because we actually do this magical thing called hand washing and we wear masks, something the Asian community did long before COVID was ever a problem. In fact, I remember flying to Japan and Singapore and coming home and all these people had masks on. I'm like, what, what are you, what are you doing? I mean, you get back breath? What, what's the issue? And it literally was that they had the foresight to know that that's how a lot of these diseases are spread or through aerosolized spread. So at the end of the day, I, I personally, I think we're going to have another mild year of the flu and COVID will be the thing that we should worry the most about. That's just a side note. But it, it doesn't mean I'm, I don't advocate flu vaccine at all. I just, I don't think that personally flu is going to be that big of a deal again this year. Do you really? I'm going to be really controversial now and say you You've got your biggest COVID outbreaks in states where nobody wears masks. They're not wearing masks. So why is that going to stop the flu? I'm not so sure it's not that they're not wearing masks. I think it's because they're not vaccinated. So they're not going to take the flu vaccine and they're not going to wear masks. Sometimes those goes hand in hand. Although I will tell you, Texas is pretty on, on the pretty, the, we're on the far right, correct? I mean, we're, we, we do things our own way and we're not quite as bad as Florida, but we're pretty far up there. That's your new state motto. We're not as bad as Florida. (laughs) 
<laughs> we're not we're not as bad as Florida. We're, uh, we're number forty nine. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I think for sure the the issue is the Delta variant. And and while the flu is always gonna be around, I, I just think we're in for another year of a, a mild flu season. Louise, you're gonna get to January and prove me wrong. I know you are, but that's at least my initial you heard it here first. So Stephen, I would love to prove I would love for us to prove you wrong, but I think I'm on Louise's side on this. No, you would love to prove me right. Not wrong. Yeah, that's right. I'd love to prove you're right. That's exactly right. I would like to have a mild flu season. That's exactly right. I think we all would. But we have turned masking and all that. Look, the state of Tennessee for a while there wanted to outlaw uh, talking about children's vaccines to go back into school. It's become, and I think that the challenge is that, that parts of this country are, are interested in the science of it and parts of this country have really gotten far away from that. Roger, here's an interesting thought. My son, who is will turn 21 years old and 10 days and is already kind of prepping for the the time he can show his ID card and actually get a beverage, adult beverage, legally, told me today, he said, Dad, the vaccine has finally been approved. And I said, son, the vaccine has been conditionally approved for quite some time. And he said, yeah, but that's why nobody's gotten it, because it wasn't fully approved. And I said, son, that's the way drug development is in the country. Just look at NASH. We get a drug approved. It's conditionally approved until we show how it changes, how a patient feels, functions, or survives. It's not fully approved. There, There is a misconception that gets thrown around on social media, and these influencers spread this through TikTok and other social media platforms that don't trust the drug. It's only conditionally approved. Don't trust the vaccine. It's only conditionally approved. It hasn't been tested in enough people yet. And so really, we had a a very heart-to-heart discussion about how the FDA works today and how the drug is no different today than it was yesterday. Nothing magical happened today that made it suddenly okay to take the drug or the vaccine versus yesterday. But uh, I'm hoping that with the news that came out today, that that will encourage another certain percentage, who knows how many percentage points, will actually go get their vaccine because now officially the vaccine must work. Whereas yesterday, it was still under investigation. It had an emergency use authorization, and now it's been sprinkled with the full array of regulatory science dust. Hey, you know, you're, you can't talk around your whole life's work of like doing research and, and, and studies that we find out things as we test them in more people and as we fully analyze the data. So, gosh, you sound like me. You sound like a patient. You sound like what I told Dennis 15 years ago when we first got married. Things did not become the truth when they were published in a peer-reviewed study. They were the truth. They were simply revealed to be so. So, but the difference between an emergency use authorization, and I know the reams and reams of data that some, you know, really hardworking FDA staff went through to look forward to give even more confidence to the general public. I do hope that this full authorization both convinces more people to take it or at least takes away an excuse of some folks to take it or to mandate it and certainly gives more freedom for people to prescribe it and will increase access. So it is a really important day. I think the distinction between take it and mandate it is pretty pivotal. They were showing in surveys two, three months ago that people who were violently opposed to the vaccine, you couldn't give them a single argument that would make them support it. They said the only way they would take it is if they were forced to. And to to the degree that organizations were holding up on mandating until full approval, I think that will turn out to be a big deal. 
Stephen, that will dwarf the few percentage points that you're talking about. Although I think there will be people like your son who are, who are waiting for that, because depending on where you get your media from, there are people who have made a big fuss out of that. On the other hand, 10 o'clock hour at Fox last week, they were talking about the value of ivermectin. So silly season isn't going to end. No, it, it's not going to end. And listen, every percentage point counts, right? No percentage point left behind. We, we'll take whatever we can get. In the U.S., one percentage point is who knows how many people that is. It's quite a big number. I think there are 93 million who are still unvaccinated, who are eligible, but still unvaccinated. And so to get 900,000 people or something, maybe huge. It's a good thing. Not, yeah. So I sent you guys this. There's a Twitter feed I saw today from someone in County Durham in the U.K. Mm-hmm. saying, hey, we've got to get our numbers up. They're too low. The numbers that they were talking about, according to government UK, were 75.3% vaxxed, and that was too low. In the States, right, that's heroic. That is. It's certainly not Alabama or Mississippi. And here's the thing. Until we get to, well, I guess we're going to get herd immunity one way or another, or community immunity one way or, or the other. You know, the way that it's being done, though, causes hundreds of thousands of unnecessary deaths. But if that's how people choose to have it, if that's the freedom that we want to have it, the freedom to die unnecessarily because you will not take a vaccine or a mask as an adult, that is sad but true. But this the injustice that we're doing to our children, however, is unforgivable. The one thing I'm going to put into the mix of this is the world has done a very good job, uh, or certain nations have done a very good job at scaremongering on AstraZeneca. But it looks like the vector vaccines may well be more protective against the Delta variant in some of the data that's coming out and the reduction in Pfizer and Moderna. Um, So we haven't decided what our booster doses are going to be, but you've got countries like Australia with very few infections per 100,000, with the troops on the streets locking down for one case whole cities, the same as New Zealand. And then we have the UK. We're out of lockdown now. A lot of people are respecting masks. A lot of people are doing that. We've got fairly stable cases. Yes, we've got 6,000 people static in hospital at the moment, but it's very stable with AstraZeneca. And we're seeing a lot of people from around the world coming to get second vaccine programs, which we're not doing in the UK, from Sputnik, from China, from thing, because they want the doses or they want another vaccine program as part of that. I was going to mention that the Financial Times had a piece today taking a look at two countries that have been aggressive in vaccinating using single vax, Pfizer in Israel and AstraZeneca in UK, and that all the projected curves say that at about four months, the lines will cross. And Azed, as y'all would call it, will wind up being more protective more than four months out than Pfizer will, which is, I think, really an important point in the context of boosters and everything else. And, and also, by the way, that good science isn't made with rush to judgment. I mean, what happened to AZ happened because of some things that happened in the first couple of weeks in cases that didn't happen as prevalently with the uh, RNA vaccines. But that's not how good science gets done. And that, that may be one of the things that we're learning now. I think that I would be remiss if we didn't leap off from that point and ensure that we can't be safe here in the United States or in any, you know, or in the UK or Australia, if the world isn't safe, if, if Africa and South America, India don't have a fully fleshed out and reality-based vaccine strategy and we participate in it. I, when I look at the expiration of, you know, a vaccine's various places, it, it seems to me that the untapped manufacturing capacity, you know, in India, for example, to have more doses produced in country or close closer than certainly New Jersey or Michigan or someplace where the shipping isn't as much of an issue. And then with our donations, but then also 
also really focusing on those last mile. Is there someone to take it from the airport where it's dropped into a network of, of villages at the right temperature with nurses or, or community health workers who know how to administer vaccines and have the trust of their communities? You know, do we have we done enough to ensure that any country both receives vaccines from a source as close as possible, but is able to pull them all the way through that last mile to the people who need them? Yeah, Donna, but that's a whole different challenge. If you go back 15, 20 years, this is ivermectin never comes up in this podcast. It's about to do that twice in two very different contexts. Merck learned 25 years ago, I guess it is now, that they could cure African river blindness with ivermectin. So they gave away the drug. And they then learned that the real expense was creating distribution networks in sub-Saharan Africa to get it to people. Well, that's why I mention it, because it's not just enough about how many millions of doses that the U.S. should be shipping somewhere, which commitments I, I absolutely do believe in. But I, I believe those other two factors, increasing in-country manufacturing capabilities, which benefits long-term economic health for that country, as well as physical health, shoring up their medical systems and that health network. And I think for, as we've been talking about doing Nash education and putting liver health hubs in different countries based on the relationships that we've developed through International Nash Day, you know, this ability to hear COVID vaccination with other aspects of, of, of liver health I, it has accelerated both conversations, our, our conversation of being able to deliver NASH and other liver health in country and in the field and, and COVID vaccination as well. So Donna, I would love to come back to that issue, maybe in whatever month we choose to do an episode on AAA, that'll be part of the AAA episode. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back next Wednesday, September 8th, with a series of individual interviews with patient advocates and some key opinion leaders discussing what each considers the most important story from the summer. Given some of the recent news and major academic publications and government actions, this should be fascinating to hear. I hope you'll join us. Until then, stay safe, surf on, see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.